and that's really what makes Hubble special. It's 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 ability to resolve objects, getting above the atmosphere. I, I think one of the highlights of it is that you know we could resolve the headlights of a car as you know individual pinpoints from 2,000 miles away. I mean, so that's it gives you an idea of of, of the resolution power. But accuracy in pointing, I mean, all that resolution is great, but if you can't point. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are doing something I, I didn't even imagine we could do a few years ago. We are not traveling in a normal way today. We've done podcasts from Italy. We've done podcasts from all over Europe and Australia and the United States and the UK. And today, frankly, we're not going as far away. We're only going 340 miles away from where I'm sitting right now. But we are going 340 miles straight up. That's right, straight up. Today, we are going to outer space. We are talking with Scott Swain. Scott is the scientific instrument engineer, a systems engineer for the Hubble Space Telescope. Frankly, the coolest camera that I can ever imagine. Scott, how are you doing today? How's life working for Hubble? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Now, where are you this morning? Physically, where are you? I'm actually in my office at the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is over in Greenbelt, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Oh, man. It, it, it's, I have to tell you, I am humbled. You know, space pictures, space has been a part of my life since I was born, way back in, in the 1950s. And when the Hubble telescope went up, it was one of those things that I found just completely personally inspiring. And the older I've got and the more I've understood, you know, sort of the complexities of, of how things work, the Hubble telescope has always sat out there as, as a sort of a shining example of, of what we can do in terms of technology, in terms of imaging technology specifically. And it remains the hallmark, I think, of just the coolest camera in, I can't even say the world anymore, coolest camera that we know about. Tell me though, how does somebody wind up getting a job working with the Hubble telescope. Give me a bit of your history from, oh, let's say, you know, high school up to working there. Well, much like yourself, it sounds like I've always had an interest in space and astronomy. So sort of a natural progression. Even back in junior high and middle school, I uh, had a subscription to Astronomy Magazine and it wasn't until after I had actually started working here at Goddard and working for Hubble that I realized I started looking back and I realized that in all these back issues of Astronomy Magazine, I had kind of chronicled the lead up up until launch for Hubble and launch and then the initial problems with the, the mirror and servicing missions. And I sort of had this history of this project that I was working on sort of completely serendipitously. Um, but it's even in high school. I wanted to pursue astronomy. Uh, I actually got a bachelor's degree in, in physics, not specifically astronomy, but I kind of wanted a more general education that would uh, could be uh, applied to more things, which turned out to be a good idea because I ended up not being a physicist per se, but in, ended up going into an engineering position uh, when I started here at Goddard. 
Mm-hmm. And when I started on Hubble, we had uh, back in 1997, we have what we call a flight operations team, which is a group of, uh, of engineers. At the time, it was four people per shift that uh, basically would monitor Hubble 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that's where I started, was uh, one of those uh, engineers on the flight operations team. And I moved over to another position on, on that team as, as well. It was actually a real big advantage for me, I, I think, uh, because it gave me a little bit more insight into the different subsystems on the spacecraft. I started out with uh, the data management subsystem, communication subsystem, electrical power sub, uh, sitting on that console, and then moved over to the point and control subsystem and the scientific instrument subsystem where I learned different, different characteristics of the different subsystems. Are you telling me the machine's a little complex? <laughs> it is amazingly complex. Um, it really, really is. And that's one of the, the neat things about Hubble is, is that complexity and how everything has to work together as an integrated whole. I mean, you can kind of imagine a bunch of engineers sitting around a lunch table and arguing, well, you know, Hubble without the pictures is nothing, so the instruments are the most important. Well, and the pointing control guy says, well, if you can't point at what you want to take a picture of, what, what good is that? And the power guy says, well, yeah, but if you don't have any power to power any of this thing, what, what good is that? So, I mean, it really, it really takes an appreciation of everything multidisciplinary uh, that all has to work just right for everything to, to operate successfully. Well, very, very cool. And, and I got to tell everybody, there are a number of websites where you can find lots of information uh, about the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, there is the Hubble site uh, website. There's NASA. There, I mean, you name it. All you got to do is Google Hubble Space Telescope and you're going to get a lot of information. Scott, you know, just as, as sort of a, a general way to begin, let, let's let's walk through it in general terms, just front to back. I mean, Hubble has, in, in photographic terms, it's got a lens cap, <laughs> and then it, you know, it's got a long barrel, just like a, a telephoto lens. So let's start with the aperture door and sort of work from there back. What are, what are the major components that a photographer would sort of recognize or be interested in? Well, sure. Uh, like you said, uh, ap- our aperture door is very much like a lens cap. We are very careful. We, our optics are pretty sensitive. Um, we've got some pretty sensitive instruments down uh, at the at the back end of the telescope, and so the aperture door is primarily a means for us to uh, prevent anything from coming in down to the bore site and, and affecting those instruments. Mainly, the sun is obviously what we're most worried about. And uh, we, we try to point at least 50 degrees away from the sun uh, to prevent any, any sort of solar contamination from, from entering that bore site. And if we get closer than that, then that aperture door is going to close protectively uh, just to protect all the optics and the instruments downstream. What, what do you mean by solar contamination? Well, if uh, the, the sun especially is bright in uh, the ultraviolet, so that can be very damaging to the sensitive okay. optics that we have. It can cause things in that even aren't optics, such as the baffling and things in the telescope to outgas. And that uh, can be very bad from a contamination point of view, where that uh, outgas material can actually deposit on, on some of our optics. Oh, my heavens. So, okay. And then you've got the long tube. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, that's our, our OTA, uh, forward shell and the light shield, basically uh, just a, a large baffle and also provides uh, some structure. Our secondary mirror is in that portion of the telescope. Uh, Hubble is a reflecting telescope, 
Uh, we use mirrors. We do not use lenses in general. So our primary mirror is about the center line, just a little bit uh, back of the center line of the telescope. And then the secondary mirror, as I mentioned, is, is up in that forward section uh, where the light's reflected before it goes back down to the focal plane, which is in the back of the telescope. You know, photographers, we, we used to have a number of reflecting telephoto lenses um, that were built, I think, that way primarily for size. You know, a 500 millimeter lens would only be, you know, three inches or so out, out of the camera body. And for someone who's not familiar, it's just basically the light comes in and hits a mirror, it reflects it back up towards the front and collects it. Very much like you see with radio, radio antenna dishes. You know, there's the big parabolic thing in the back and then a focusing point up front. So from the secondary mirror, then what happens? So from the secondary mirror, the light travels back through the primary mirror. There's a, about a 24 inch hole in the primary mirror that, uh, and that leads to the focal plane, um, which is behind the, the primary mirror. And that's where our instruments sit in what we call the aft shroud, uh, which is the back end of the telescope. And that's where our, we have our four axial instruments and uh, four radial instruments uh, that, that each have a piece of that focal plane that, that it uses to, to look at its field, a particular field of view for that uh, given detector. Do the instruments back there, do they rotate like, you know, a 1950s movie camera? You know, you'd see the big dish and change to different lenses. Or is it just a matter of electronics and magic to get a certain sensor turned on? Well, the detectors themselves are all electronic, so we're, we're, we're moved far beyond the era of, of film here. These are all electronic detectors. Uh, the ones that you see that are in invisible light, usually the ones that you see the pretty pictures that are released for, to the public are usually from our, our CCD detectors, our charge couple devices, which are basically just like the digital cameras that you would use that everybody has now. Yeah, there are other types of detectors as well that uh, detect in different portions of the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum. Hubble actually can see from the far infrared all the way up to the ultraviolet portion of the spectrum. And we use different detectors to, to do that. I, I, I really want to get into this in, in a little bit about how you can see so much with that instrument because... You know, visible light is, is such a narrow part of, of the electromagnetic spectrum. Let, let, let's take a stroll through the different detectors for a minute. I know one of them is, is the wide feed field camera. Tell me about that one, the WFC3. Well, it's probably our premier instrument on board, at least for uh, ultraviolet and visible light that takes the, the, the images that you, again, that you really see in the magazines and things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually two different detectors. It, one is a, a CCD, again, a charge couple device, as I mentioned before, just a digital camera that gets us those nice wide field images that really characterize the Hubble, Hubble imaging capability. It also has an infrared detector. Uh, so it's, it's two, two kind of two cameras in one. And that really helps us in, uh, there's infrared light helps us see inside uh, dust dust clouds and things. So we can actually take a picture of uh, a nebula, say, uh, where a star is being born, and then switch over to the infrared channel and actually see into that dust cloud and see the uh, the protostars that are actually being formed. Is, is any of this real time? I mean, are you sitting at a, at a monitor th thinking, holy cow, look at that? Or is this, you know, a long time for, for the images to somehow be processed? 
No, it's it's certainly not real time. Uh, the sort of the, the the path that the data follows is from from the telescope. We transmit our data through TDRA satellites, which are the tracking data relay satellite system. Uh, satellite constellation that NASA operates. And that comes down to a ground station and then gets translated through uh, ground data paths over to Goddard Space Flight Center. And then the science data itself actually gets shipped up to the Space Telescope Science Institute up in Baltimore on the campus of Johns Hopkins University. And we really don't see the science data. The, uh, the science data itself is proprietary. Whoever Whatever astronomer proposes a certain observation or series of observations, uh, they get first dibs at that, looking at that data so they can do their own research or analysis on it, and they get that for a time. Uh, and then after a certain period of time, that data then goes into the public domain, and anyone can use that data to, to uh, do their own research. That is amazing. The Hubble capture, I'm going to say captures an image. I realize even that's not quite right, but captures an image. It gets routed through satellites and then through ground stations to whoever actually owns that, that bit of time. But just like photographers, you know, would, would shoot in raw and then have to put their picture in, you know, Lightroom or Photoshop or something like that to clean it up. You don't see what we see. You have to add or adjust color. You have to do all sorts of processing. How does that work? That's right. Uh, Hubble, all the Hubble images that we take are monochrome images. We don't we don't shoot in in color per se. What we do, uh, as you mentioned, Whitefield Camera Three um, has a, a filter wheel, uh, like you would uh, insert certain filters on uh, you know terrestrial cameras and such. We have a, a wheel that we can select different filters for different wavelengths and different. Um, emission spectra and things like that that we specifically want to capture. And so by doing that, you can, with those filters, you can take a monochrome image and you have that information for that wavelength. And then once you get that information on the ground, you can stack those images with the wavelengths that you're interested in and uh, produce a color image. You can either do a a true color image, which is more like um, an RGB or red, green, blue filter sort of thing. Or you can do what they call narrowband imaging. And if you have any, you know, astrophotographers that, that listen to the podcast, they, they're probably very familiar with, with doing this, where you have uh, certain filters that are certain wavelengths of light. Uh, the popular ones are with hydrogen alpha, sulfur, and oxygen. And getting those emission lines, especially, and then combining those to, to make a, uh, an SHO or image or a narrowband image often was what is referred to as the Hubble palette uh, because it's it's similar to uh, the color spectrum that that or the color palette that Hubble uses on some of its images. So, with with the, with the true color images, if, if suddenly you know Star Trek was real and I'm sitting outside the Pillars of Creation, one of the most famous Hubble you know images, is that what I would see? It's intended to give a, a feel of that, but it can't quite do exactly what you'd see. I mean, we're, again, because of the wavelengths that Hubble is sensitive to, a lot of times some of what you're seeing in the image is something that we can't see with our naked eye. Uh, mm-hmm. It goes into the ultraviolet. It goes into the, a little bit of the, uh, the, the infrared. So we're seeing details that we wouldn't necessarily be able to see with, with our eyes. Oh, man. So is, is there an art director at Hubble, somebody who looks at an image and says, this looks cool? There actually essentially is. Uh, um, <laughs> they, they have a whole 
outreach department and and who go and produce these images for for release and and for publication and they do a fantastic job they really really do oh i mean the, the images inspire everybody i think tell me about the cosmic origin spectrograph uh cosmic origin spectrograph and I, I probably should have said this up front, but uh, we use a lot of uh, acronyms here in NASA, uh-huh. and especially okay. in Apple, so I'm going to try not to use them. But you know, in case one slips in, just you know, stop me. Usually, I refer to it as COS or COS. Uh, it's a spectrograph, and so this is one of our instruments that uh, that records uh, ultraviolet images or ultra, and ultraviolet spectra, which gives us a little bit different different information. We can use spectrographs to give us information on uh, how energetic an object is, how uh, what its temperature is, and kind of most importantly, what the chemical composition of something can be by uh, looking at these, these spectra of these, these objects. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is Hubble involved with exoplanets and, and that kind of stuff? Very much so. We do a lot of exoplanet observations, gotten to be one of our more popular uh, modes of observation in the last couple of years. Explain to me how, just given the distance, because as, as I understand it, an exoplanet passes in front of whatever its host star is, and as the light comes through that planet's atmosphere, we are able to, because of spectroscopy, understand the chemical components of that atmosphere. That's right. We've come a long way with, with exoplanet uh, detection. I mean, I, it used to be that we would try to detect the presence of, a, of an exoplanet or another body in a stellar system by looking at how that star was perturbed as the other object orbited around it. And you could tell by that wobble that there was something else that we might not be able to see that was you know, affecting that star's orbit. And we've gone on to more direct methods of detection where we can actually uh, essentially occult the, the, the main star of the system and, and directly observe the, uh, the, the exoplanet or, like you mentioned, even to the point where if that uh, planet occults the, its, or passes in front of its star and, and we can detect the, the spectra of the actual uh, uh, the atmosphere of that exoplanet and determine what, what it's composed of. But... but- Explain to me in, in sort of, you know, DSLR terms, how you can resolve anything that small, that far away. Well, that is one of the, the real special parts about, about Hubble. It's able to resolve things that we just don't have that ability to resolve here on, on the ground. Uh, and part of that is its location. I mean, it is a space telescope, so it is in space. Mm-hmm. which puts it on the other side of uh, this atmosphere that, that the Earth has. Now, uh, the atmosphere is problematic for astronomical observation for a couple of different reasons. One, obviously, if down here on the ground, if it's cloudy, you can't see through the cloud, uh, so you can't observe. But more than that, even if it isn't cloudy, the atmosphere is very unstable with you know thermal currents and, and, and all sorts of things that, give you a lot of wobble or vibration and makes it very hard to, to observe through. Now, there's something called adaptive optics that makes that a little bit more, e- more easy for the ground-based observatories. But our solution, obviously, is to get ourselves above all that and, and go into space and not have to worry about observing through the atmosphere. And then lastly, the, the big thing that the atmosphere does for us, which is 
very important is it blocks certain portions of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, which is good for us uh, down here on Earth because it keeps us from uh, certain harmful radiation. But uh, that radiation is also sometimes what we want to observe uh, from an astronomical standpoint. So we can observe in the ultraviolet. And that's one of the, the, the critical things about Hubble is it's, I think, one of the only still operating uh, ultraviolet space telescopes that we, we've got up there. So it is very, very critical to the uh, ultraviolet science community. Oh, my. Has anybody tried to translate Hubble's uh, focal length into sort of um, Earth terms? I mean, you know, my longest lens is a 500 millimeter lens. What would Hubble be in that terms? Has anyone figured that out? Well, the primary mirror itself <laughs> is uh, 94 inches. It's about 2.4 meters. The secondary is 12, about 12 inches, a little over 12 inches, I think 0.3 meters. Its total focal length is 189 feet. Uh, and it's folded into a, again, it's a Cassegrain reflector. So that, that, that focal length is folded to 21 feet. So overall, it's got an F ratio of uh, F24. If you're talking sort of terrestrial terms. <laughs> oh my. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. There's a couple other sensors up there. Walk me through you know, the, the, the imaging spectrograph and the near-infrared camera. Right. Uh, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, or we call STIS uh, for short, uh, for acronyms, is, was our, one of our original instruments that went on in the service mission two uh, that uh, gave us a really great uv capability initially and the near infrared camera and multi-object spectrometer or nicmos was our uh, infrared camera uh, that also went on in servicing mission two it had uh, a little bit of an issue uh, when we first got it up there it, to observe in the infrared you need a very cold detector because you're trying to observe very faint microwave background radiation. Uh, so it, the detector needs to be cooled uh, down to somewhere in the range of you know, 70 to 80 Kelvin. The way that NICMOS originally did that is it had this uh, doer, basically a, a large thermos that, that, that kept its detectors cold uh, with a nitrogen aluminum foam that was, that was cooled. But it had a thermal short, unfortunately, um, that was discovered once we got it to orbit. So that uh, the cryogen basically boiled away faster than we expected it to. And Nick Moss was dormant for a couple of years uh, after that. And luckily in servicing mission 3B, which happened in 2002, we were able to put a mechanical cooling system on board and actually resurrect uh, Nick Moss for a while. But uh, Nick Moss currently is, is, is dormant because largely the uh, infrared camera that I mentioned before on uh, the Whitefield Camera 3 that infrared channel uh, is, is used. It's newer and it's a little bit uh, different technology and uh, gives us a little bit better results. Wow. You, you mentioned, you know, that there have, been, there have been some issues with Hubble since it went up there. So, I mean, just to 
fill everybody in, you know, the first idea for the Hubble telescope was came in the 1940s. 1946 is the date they give for the first sort of scientific paper about the, the value of a space telescope. And, and I, I find this amazing because if you think of where technology was, you know, in 1946, 69, uh, National Academy of Science reports in favor of it. 77 is when the funding starts. 1978 is when grinding the mirror begins. And then April 24th, 1990, the shuttle Discovery, STS-31, put the thing in space. June 27th of 1990, they announced a spherical aberration. Tell me, tell me what happened. Well, uh, the mirror was probably one of, if not the most precisely ground mirrors that we've created. And unfortunately, it was precisely ground to the wrong shape. The outer <laughs> edge of the mirror was about two microns too shallow. And essentially what that boils down to is, is as you mentioned, the, the, the spherical aberration. And what that means is the mirror wasn't able to focus all of the light into the focal plane as it should. It only was able to focus about 15% of the light that it was supposed to gather uh, in, into, into the focal plane. So the images weren't nearly as bright, weren't nearly as clear as we expected. Now, that said, and if you look at some of the images back then, they're still pretty amazing uh, compared to what we were getting from ground-based astronomy at the time. But they weren't everything that, that we expected them to be. But luckily, uh, we got some you know, pretty smart engineers here on the ground, and they figured out a way that we could correct the optics uh, using um, additional mirrors that we would put in to each individual instrument's optical path that would, you know, correct the aberration and then allow the instrument to observe as, as it was intended to. Now, the other half was the new instruments that were created actually, instead of using what we call the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, or COSTAR, see why we use acronyms? Um, <laughs> that, that was the instrument that did all this. But uh, the other instruments that were put up after, that, uh, after the, the servicing mission actually incorporated those optics into their own designs. So as time went on and more and more instruments got replaced, the, the COSTAR Corrective Optics were, were no longer needed. Oh, my. Now, I, I did look this up. Two microns is one-fiftieth of a human hair. I mean, just let, let, let that sink in. One-fiftieth. And you said with that small of an error, it could only collect 15% of the light it was supposed to? That's right. That's right. And that's all it takes. Well, it's... I, I, again, I, th this goes so far beyond, you know, my ability to imagine either the math or even just the, the, the mechanics of this because of for the cameras we hold in our hand. You know, we talk about uh, and when we're talking about, you know, stability here, um, you know, we talk about vibration reduction in a lens or we talk about here's an acronym IBIS, in body image stabilization, you know, in, in the camera body itself. And it's easy to think, well, this is in outer space. Stabilization's not a problem. And yet, you know, again, the, the Earth's going around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. How do you keep Hubble stable enough, even though it's moving and, it, and it's moving rapidly on these tremendously far away objects? Yeah, we're whipping around the Earth at 17,000 miles per hour. And yeah, I'm not sure if, if anybody's ever tried to take a picture going that fast before, but it's, <laughs> it, it, it is a challenge. 
and and that's really what makes Hubble special. It's 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 ability to resolve objects, getting above the atmosphere. I, I think one of the highlights of it is that you know we could resolve the headlights of a car as you know individual pinpoints from two thousand miles away. I mean, so that's it gives you an idea of of, of the resolution power. But accuracy and pointing, I mean, all that resolution is great, but if you can't point accurately to some of these really small astronomical targets that you'd like to hit, then, you know, the resolving power doesn't mean much. And you'll hear uh, Hubble often boast of what we call seven milliarc second pointing stability. And basically what that means is we could uh, focus on Roosevelt's eye on a dime uh, in New York, with uh, Hubble being in Washington D.C. Now, see that that I can understand. That's impressive. But then we go back to looking through the atmosphere of an exoplanet. That's a that's a that's a big difference in degree there. How how do you stay resolved and locked on something that far away? And so that goes back to you know some of our other subsystems on board, uh, our pointing control system, uh, mm-hmm. where we have gyroscopes which which measure our, the rate at which Hubble is rotating in, in various axes and can and do that very accurately. And then uh, once we know that to a reasonable degree, we engage our, our fine guidance sensors, our FGSs. And these basically allow us to focus on guide stars at the edge of our field of view of the focal plane and very accurately stay locked onto those guide stars and keep the, the field of view of whatever detector we might be using Know, very, very accurately pointed at its its intended target. I should have paid more attention in math class. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. I know that feeling. Uh, uh, tell me some stories, because I mean, I'm, I, you know, either about particular images, because I mean, all you have to do is Google famous Hubble images, and you get tons of them. And ha- even having seen them my entire life, you know, th- they still call me up short. But you, you've been involved, particularly with, with a couple of repair missions uh, that you know could have ended the the entire mission. Tell me, tell me the stories you most like to tell about working on Hubble. Oh gosh, there's 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 many. Well, one of the ones that uh, that some actually people may have heard. This is this sort of a famous one from our last servicing mission. As you mentioned, this was this was sort of one of those near miss occasions. But uh, John Grunsfeld was one of the astronauts that, that went up on the last mission. Very famously told the story on uh, the NPR show Car Talk. Uh, he kind of almost anonymously dialed in to, uh, to that show uh, with, uh, with uh, an engineering problem about a, about a stuck bolt. But if you ever get a good chance to go back and listen to the recording of that, that show, it is, it is pretty funny. Did, did he dial in from space? This was after the fact, so he wasn't actually oh, okay, battling okay. <laughs> back when he was on the ground. But it, but it, was, it, was, it was still pretty entertaining. Um, but, you know, he was talking about something that happened in, during that, uh, that fourth servicing mission of ours where the Widefield Camera 3 that you, we were talking about before, its predecessor was the Widefield Planetary Camera 2. And before Widefield Camera 3 went in, you know, Widefield Planetary Camera 2 had to come out. And one of the bolts that was actually holding it in was frozen, uh, and they couldn't get any any movement on it uh, for a minute. So there was a some some very tense moments here on the ground where we were uh, wondering if we were going to be able to remove the former camera to insert our, our new more powerful camera. Um, but you know the, the astronauts are, are nothing if not uh, perseverant. They they want to do their jobs 
better than anybody else does. And so they were able to, to figure out the problem, apply a little bit more torque on the tool and actually, you know, un, unstick that bolt. And Whitefield Planetary Camera 2 came out and uh, Whitefield Camera 3 went in. And the rest is astronomical history. <laughs> Tell me about the problems with the gyroscopes. Well, our, our gyroscopes are uh, rate-sensing gyroscopes. They, they uh-huh. again, sense different uh, as Hubble moves in, in different axes and can sense which direction. So we know, uh, in general, kind of where we're pointing and, and where we're going. They, are, they have a component in them uh, called a flex lead, which basically, in gyroscopes, uh, I should probably back up a little bit, gyroscopes, just like the, the, the toy that a lot of people probably played with as, as kids, think of it sort of like a spinning top. And as that top spins, if you've ever seen a, a watch the top spin, you know it sort of uh, wobbles or nutates around its axis. And it's the deflection of that axis that uh, gives us our ability to, to sense change in rate. So with this, this sort of spinning top that's in, inside Hubble, it has to send an electrical signal out, outside of it uh, to, you know, to, to tell us what the, exactly the rate is. These flex leads that, uh, that, that carry that signal are actually embedded in a fluid that's kind of corrosive to the the material that they're that they're they're made from uh, over time. So over time, these flex leads eventually you know get corroded and and will fail. And that's just sort of you know the the one of the costs of, of doing business. We've got enhanced flex lead flex leads in in some of the gyroscopes that are that are on orbit now. So some of the ones that we've replaced as the gyroscopes have failed and have aged and have been able to be replaced during the servicing missions, uh, some of these enhanced flex lead uh, gyroscopes have gone in, and those are giving us much better lifetime. Hubble has six of them on board, and over the years, we've actually developed different control modes for our pointing control system. It used to be that we would, uh, we would operate with four gyroscopes in our control loop, uh, and to give us a little bit of redundancy, we need three-axis stability. So we would definitely need at least three in the control loop. Um, we would usually operate with four to give us a little bit of redundancy. But back then, if we if we failed two, then we would go into a safe mode, and you know observations would stop, and, and operations would uh, we'd have to go in and uh, recover the telescope. But now we've got control modes that can operate with uh, two gyros instead of three. And even down to one gyro now, we've uh, got some uh, some engineering knowledge that enables us to do that. So our finite resource of gyroscopes, you know, eventually depletes as it inevitably will as as the longer we stay on orbit. We've uh, we've come up with these means to extend Hubble's usable life operationally uh, as as we go further. So 1999, when the gyros stopped working, that was more or less expected, or or was that a oh heavens, what are we going to do now moment? Well, I mean, you always expect failures, especially in a in a space environment, and mm-hmm. especially with uh, with you know temporary or not temporary, but um, limited resources uh, as we have, um, and the gyroscopes are certainly one of them. But the mission in '99, uh, back before sir, this was servicing mission three A, we had one too many gyro failures, and we were actually sitting uh, dormant for a little while until uh, the space shuttle could come up uh, with the uh, service mission 3A and replace the gyroscopes and, and get us back in business. So you, you were sitting at your desk during those days. Was it, you know, oh, yeah, we just got to, you know, get another part from the auto repair store, or was it white-knuckle time? It wasn't so much white-knuckle time. I and mean, back in those days, 
we were, you know, in the in the throes of the, you know the servicing era. So there was a space shuttle on the ground with astronauts who were very capable at that doing these in orbit repairs. We knew that there was a, a good way out. We knew there was light at the end of the tunnel. It was just a matter of getting all the preparations for doing the servicing mission done and and getting you know the mission underway. So it uh, it wasn't too much of a white knuckle time. It certainly isn't isn't a comfortable time. I mean, we never want the telescope <laughs> to sit idle. And this is you know probably probably one of one of if not the most you know productive scientific observatories in in history. Absolutely, we just sitting around. Uh, so you know we, we our our sweet spot is you know doing as much science as we possibly can all the time. So from that aspect, it's it's not good. But it certainly we weren't sitting around twiddling our thumbs. I mean, pri- prior to that, in, um, you know, 1998 timeframe, Hubble has five servicing missions. Servicing mission one, two, three A, three B, and four. So we, we counted a little differently there. But th- that's because that third servicing mission, like I said, in 1998-ish timeframe, was supposed to be one servicing mission, servicing mission three. And we had a, a bunch of stuff that a bunch of hardware, a bunch of uh, changes and repairs that we wanted to make in that mission, almost too many. So we had to break it up into two. And then uh, the issue with the gyroscopes came up. So, you know, that obviously became a, a priority. And that mission uh, with the gyroscopes went up, went up first. And then the rest of the hardware that we were planning to go up in servicing mission three, then went on in, uh, and went on in servicing mission 3B, which happened in 2002. Oh, man. I still think you've got the, the, the coolest job in the, in the world doing this kind of stuff. When that mission was over, the, the 99 mission, as, as I understand the story, the then director uh, said, we, we need a picture that's just going to wow everybody afterwards, and came up with an idea that did not receive universal support before it was taken and has gone on to be perhaps Hubble's most famous single image. Tell, tell me tell me if I got it right, first of all, but tell me the story of the deep field image. Well, that's you've got the, the, the background right. It was uh, done under director's discretionary time. It wasn't uh, a proposal that came in from the astronomical community. And a lot of people did think it was a crazy idea to spend essentially 10 days of dedicated telescope time essentially staring at a spot in space where there was nothing that we could see. I mean, just empty space. When you say 10 days, is this a 10-day continuous exposure? Not completely continuous 10 days. I mean, 10 okay. days uh, Hubble time. I mean, okay. obviously, as, as we go around the Earth in our orbit, we're going to occult on the Earth, depending on, okay. again, depending on where we're, we're pointing. You know, we have different restrictions on exactly how long we can we can observe at any given time. But essentially, yeah, it was pretty continuous. If, if not, you know, absolutely 10 days. Okay. So he, you're pointing the telescope where there's not a thing that, you, that you've ever seen before. That's right. And much to everyone's surprise, once we got the images down, I mean, every, I'm sure everybody has seen the, 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 the deep field observations now, but it's, it's just a tapestry of galaxies some of the dis- most distant galaxies that at that time we'd ever seen going back, you know, a, a good fraction of the way towards the Big Bang. Looking at that image really sort of hammers home, you know, sort of our position in the universe, gives you an idea, one, of how big the universe is and how incredibly small a part we are in it. 
uh, sort of humbling. And, uh, and since that time, we've done a couple of different deep fields. We've done a, an ultra deep field. That initial deep field was done back with uh, the Whitefield Planetary Camera 2. And then we've, uh, as we've uh, improved our, our detectors, uh, as uh, servicing missions have gone on and we've, we've upgraded our, our, our hardware, uh, we've done it with uh, advanced camera for surveys as well as uh, wide field uh, camera three. And we also did an infrared version with, uh, with Nick Moss. Oh my. Is there a current record for farthest away slash oldest thing we've seen? If I'm not mistaken, I, I, the, the one that, that sticks out in my mind was uh, an observation I think that was done or released in 2016. There was a Galaxy GNZ11, I believe, is it's its designation, uh, which doesn't tell you a whole lot, but it's uh, I think it currently has the holds the distance record. I think that's about 13.4 billion years ago. So it's it's way back there. Oh, jeez. Just a couple more questions. People that are into this kind of stuff are probably aware that there is another telescope going up, the, the, the Webb telescope, which if Hubble's 340 miles above the Earth, the Webb is going to be a million miles away from the Earth. And the point is made that Webb does not orbit the Earth, it orbits the Sun, just but sort of stays behind us to keep, you know, light off it and stuff. What is, what is going to be the essential difference between Hubble and Webb? Well, Webb is going to be largely an infrared instrument using uh, that those wavelengths of light. And using that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, we can peer further back towards the Big Bang and really get images of the universe in its infancy. Uh, and, and that's the, the, the big hope with Webb. Also, as we were talking about before with exoplanets, um, it should give us uh, a lot of good opportunity to do some observing of, of exoplanets and peering into these uh, gas gaseous regions and, and dusty regions and, and penetrating that and, and getting able to see some of the things that might be hidden from us in, uh, in other portions of the spectrum. But th this does not mean, e even for a microsecond, that Hubble's going to stop observing. T tell me what's the future for Hubble right now. W what are the next four or five missions that you've already got planned? What's going to be happening five years from now? Well, hopefully we will still be observing. That's certainly the goal, as you mentioned, is to do parallel observations with, uh, with James Webb. We do offer some uh, additional, you know, electromagnetic spectrum visibility that, that Webb doesn't, but using the two together uh, would really leverage some, some great astronomical resources and enable some, some wonderful science. So currently in the NASA environment, we do not have any plans for doing any other servicing, uh, whether on a manned mission uh, or, or robotic. With the, the retirement of the space shuttle, the, the manned missions are, are no longer an option. We will have uh, eventually, a once our scientific mission does end, uh, and which it eventually will. We want to prolong that as much as we can, of course. But you know, we're, everybody who's eyes open about that, and there will eventually be an end to the mission. But we definitely don't want to just leave uh, a spacecraft as large as Hubble up in low Earth orbit. I mean, his orbit will eventually degrade, and eventually Hubble will return to Earth one way or the other. But we would, we really want to make sure it's a controlled return to make sure that there's there's no danger of, of it 
landing in a populated area. We want to make sure it splashes down somewhere uninhabited in the middle of the ocean, uh, if that's if that's the uh, the choice. The other option would be to, and this would be done with um, either either option would be done with a propulsion module that we would attach to the uh, the aft bulkhead or the back end of the telescope, and we would either be able to do a controlled reentry or actually be able to boost it up into a higher orbit uh, where it wouldn't reenter uh, for uh, at least a, a much longer time. That that is going to be a very sad day when that happens. I, I'm going to betray my age here a little bit. Somewhere in my basement, I have a Skylab hat. If you remember those when Skylab came down, are you old, are you old enough to remember that? Mm, only from books. <laughs> only from books. <laughs> Well, yeah, we, we weren't quite sure where that one was going to land. So there was a big pop culture, these, these little plastic hats to protect you from Skylab. Uh, it, it was a great, terrible fashion statement in the day. Anyway, sir, do you have a favorite image? Is, is, is there one that, that you like more than others? You know, I'm, I'm going to be a little weird. Kind of my favorite Hubble observation actually isn't an image. It's one of the, the, the spectra. It's an older image. It was uh, an, uh, or an older observation taken of uh, the, one of the giant elliptical galaxies, M84. It's actually a, a stiff spectra. A lot of people refer to it as the squiggle, but it's basically just a, a, a line, you know, kind of a green squiggle in the center. And on one, one side, it squiggles over, it turns red, and the other side squiggles and it turns blue. But that observation was one of the, the first real confirmations that we had of the existence of black holes, supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies. So, you know, me putting on my, my, my physics hat, that's, that's sort of my favorite, just, you know, one of those images that uh, showed us that black holes actually really did exist out there in the universe. <laughs> oh, man, that, that is so cool. And basically what that was doing is that squiggle was showing us, you know, I'm sure most people are familiar with the Doppler effect that we hear with, mm-hmm. with sound uh, on here on Earth, where you know, a train comes, comes towards you and the, the pitch of the whistle rises. Uh, and as it you know, goes away from you, you hear the pitch of the whistle decrease uh, and go down in pitch. Um, light does the same, much the same thing, where light that is traveling towards you gets blue shifted, so it looks bluer. Yep. And light that's traveling yep. away from you looks red shifted or, or redder. So that squiggle was, was showing us, based on the, the, the mass that we knew was in the, the core of this galaxy, that something in there was rotating, and it was rotating as a result of of mass that we couldn't see. So at that point, we knew that you know, based on the velocity of this unseen mass rotating, that really the only thing that it could physically be causing that was a black hole. The things that images can tell you, Scott. Thank you very much. This has been a, a tremendously interesting interview, especially for someone like me who's sort of a space geek but doesn't know a bit of the science behind it. Thank you very much. Uh, You're very welcome. My pleasure. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.